This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We'll start there in verse 36. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the, with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do just this in our midst now. That you would save some and allow them to go from this place in peace. Lord, we also pray that you would open our eyes if we have become forgetful about our forgiveness, forgetful about our sin. And it shows in the way that we love or don't love, in the way that we worship and don't worship. Our affections for you, our selfless love for you is diminished. Lord, whatever those Warning bells need to go off in our hearts by the Spirit. Would you do that, we pray? Would you just meet with us? Would you help us to be really forgetful of ourselves and to focus on you? We just want you to be the focus, you to be the sender of our time. We just gather around you. And you would do your work among us, we ask it. We pray you would do this. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Jesus is great news for Muslim women. That comes from 
a worker among Kurdish Muslims who went on to tell about a conversation that she had with a woman from Kurdistan that was meeting with 30 other women. In the name of Jesus, she said. We need the gospel, she said. One member of the Kurdish parliament spoke about the need for women in Kurdistan. He said this, he said, we have to do something for the women. The refugee women are being driven to prostitution to feed their children. It is our shame. It is the fruit of Muhammad. Islam shows no mercy to a woman once she is soiled. There is no salvation for her. Another woman working in the Middle East said this, The worst sin a woman can commit here is to lose or appear to have lost her virginity outside of marriage. The most important asset she has as a woman is her reputation. If a woman has nothing but her reputation as a chaste woman, she always has a chance to succeed. If she has everything but her reputation, she is lost before she begins. In some parts of the Arab world, all it takes to lose your reputation is to be seen speaking to a man who isn't a relative. Now consider that same system, but take it back 2,000 years to a less forgiving time. Now think about Jesus' encounter with the sinful woman. Shocking, isn't it? Unquote. Much of Jesus' ministry fits under that category of shocking. Jesus turns things upside down. One key theme that we've seen and noted in Luke's gospel is Jesus reaching out to outsiders. People that are seen to be outside of the norm, outside of the faith for various reasons, especially women. They fall into that category culturally. Look at the next verses after chapter 7. Look at the way chapter 8 begins. There in chapter 8, verse 1. Soon after he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, and whom, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. This is extraordinary. It was far from normal for a rabbi to encourage uh, female followers like this. But Jesus did, from a range of backgrounds and experiences, including some who had been possessed by demons. They were followers and financial supporters of his ministry from their own means. So that's pretty plugged in to the ministry of Jesus. In chapter 7, we've already seen the, the unlikely faith of a Gentile centurion, We've seen Jesus pour out compassion on a hurting widow who had lost her son, another highlighted woman there by Luke. And then sandwiched in between these stories of faith were the questions from John the Baptist and his disciples about, are you the one to come or should we look for someone else? And remember, Jesus simply replied, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. Friends, that good news would have included stories like this. Stories of forgiveness. Of very unlikely people. Another question hangs over this passage in verse 49. Who is this who forgives sins? So Jesus is answering a couple of big questions to his followers. 
in this story. Who can forgive sins? And then how do forgiven sinners live? More specifically, how do they love? Who can forgive sins and how do forgiven sinners live? How do they love? So we see in our text a comparison that really illustrates the answer. One religious, one outwardly obedient, and one outside of the community, the community of faith, with a great many public known sins. One culturally and religiously accepted, one rejected. One seemingly clean, one dirty. One of those two people walks away forgiven. One is uninterested. One is justified by faith in Jesus. The other is self-righteous and cold to Jesus. And it might not be the person you would pick. If you were just looking at these two candidates, who's going to be the one who walks with Jesus? It might not be the one that we would naturally pick. And so the, the text invites us to comparison between these two characters, sinful woman, Simon the Pharisee, and that's how we'll kind of go through the text. So I want to mention three pairs of contrasts that we see in this story that will be the outline if you're taking notes of the sermon this morning. Three pairs of contrasts. Okay, number one, we're going to see a contrast of two greetings. Two greetings. Number two, a contrast of two debtors. Two debtors. And then finally, number three, a contrast of two loves. Two greetings, two debtors, two loves. And we're going to go from kind of observation, just seeing what happens down to application as we just look and see how this unfolds and brings us right to Jesus. It leads us to the simple conclusion. This is one of our kind of core values as a church. Part of our mission is that we're motivated by the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels us. And we've said often this statement that the gospel creates a life of love. So I was going to summarize this passage. This is what I would say. The gospel creates a life of love. Of love. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And we see that as we first look at this pair of contrasts with the two greetings. And I just want to observe what happens here. Notice how the scene begins there in verse 36 again. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. One of the most beautiful things and most challenging things about preaching and reading narrative is what the author doesn't say about the story. We know the Pharisee here invites Jesus to to dinner. We don't know why. We don't know what his attitude was. We don't know the the tone necessarily. Uh, There's some things we do know. But was he curious about Jesus? Was he kind of looking for a private way to, to ask some of his own personal questions? Is he trying to trap Jesus? Is he just like to brag about the people that he brings over for dinner to his friends? We don't know Some of these things, we're left to speculate, but we can fill in some details about this dinner party. Homes in these days would have had an open floor plan, so a wealthy man like this Pharisee would have been able to host his guests in kind of an outside courtyard. Sometimes the courtyard would be in the central of the house, sometimes it would be on the outside. But this meal is not like a family meal around a dinner table. It turns into like a semi-public event. So so think about National Neighbors Night Out. When you're in your front yard, hopefully, inviting people over for food, it's kind of a block party. That's what this is. This is is more of a block party than a private meal, which would explain, you know, why it would be strange for us if we're having a meal in our home and someone kind of sticks their head out behind a chair. It's like, oh, someone's here. That's not the situation here. Very normal for someone to walk up to the dinner 
and to be a part of it, even to take place, to take part in the food, in the conversation. The other cultural reality has to do with the greetings. And Jesus kind of goes over that as we go through. Normally, a host would greet the guest of honor with a kiss on the cheek, kiss of peace. Customarily, their sandals would be taken off, their feet would be washed. When they entered, uh, when they're reclining at the table, all the dirt would be removed. They would be refreshed in this way. Dinner guests would be given, uh, they would be anointed with olive oil on the head. None of this is recorded in verse 36. And from what we're about to see, we can safely conclude this is the reason why Simon, this Pharisee, is purposely withholding some of these common courtesies to Jesus, to his honored guest. And so there would have been a natural tension at the table, natural tension for people observing what was happening, that he is getting slighted by his host. Everyone who wandered in would have been able to see it. So as they walk into the, to, to the, to the courtyard, they would see around this table, people are reclining, maybe around these low couches, their feet are extended away from the table, the feet are dirty, kind of, you know, um, offensive, so those are away from the table. And so everyone who walks in can see Jesus' feet are dirty, embarrassingly dirty, maybe. He had been slighted by the host. And one person in particular takes notice of this. And the way Luke introduces her just helps us to feel the shock. He says, behold, a woman. A woman. This account, I think, is unique to Luke. There's another account very similar in Matthew 26. I think these are different accounts. We can talk about that later if you have questions. We don't know this woman's name, but we can say this. Although it would be common for people to approach a meal like this, block party style, it would not be common for a woman like this to approach a Pharisee. At a Pharisee's home, it would be very unconventional, very inappropriate, particularly as for this Pharisee. And so any, all that's about to happen is very uncommon. And so verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. So we know this about this woman. She's a woman of the city, which means she's a woman of the streets, of the night. She's referred to as a sinner, which means she's a known sinner, kind of a publicly known sinner. Her reputation is publicly soiled. Most likely she's a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. Or somehow she's associated with sexual sin or someone who's very much known to be a sinner. But three times in this passage, she's referred to as a sinner. By Luke here in verse 37, by the Pharisee in his own thoughts in verse 39, and then Jesus acknowledges her many sins in verse 47. And it's this woman that learned about where Jesus was and came to him. And she comes with this alabaster flask of what was likely perfumed ointment. It would have been costly. Maybe the most, one of the most expensive things she owned. Probably worn around her neck on a cord. And she's likely going in intending to wash Jesus' feet and then perfume his feet with this oil. But what she didn't plan on, likely, are her emotions. When she gets close to Jesus, she, she starts crying. 
Right? That probably wasn't in her immediate plan. But getting close to Jesus, she loses control of her emotions. The word for wet there, she wet his feet, is often used of rainstorms. So she's not just sniffling. This is serious crying. A storm of tears. And then she kind of looks down and sees Jesus' dirty feet streaked with her tears. And we're left to wonder, why is she so emotional? Like, what is wrong with this woman? And then she does another shocking thing. She sees kind of the mess on Jesus' feet, and she takes her hair down to dry it off and to clean off his feet. Again, just a shocking thing for a woman to do in this day. It would be shameful for a woman to let down her hair in public. The Jewish Talmud goes as far as to say that a man could divorce his wife if, he, if, if she showed her hair to another man. But the point is not that she's doing anything erotic. So you need to make that really clear, like even with the kissing of his feet, the letting down of her, of her hair. It is not an erotic thing. It is that she has absolutely forgotten herself. She has forgotten herself being next to Jesus. She isn't thinking any more about the customs. She isn't thinking any more about what other people are thinking about her, how loud they are gasping, and they're likely gasping loudly. She anoints Jesus' feet with oil and kisses them profusely. And so this is an act of affection and humility. Affection and humility, because normally the host would kiss the, be kissed on the cheek. Well, she's not kissing his cheek, she's kissing his feet. The most unclean part of someone, the dirtiest part. The anointing oil was meant to be for the head, and she puts it on his feet. So she's taking this grateful position, this low position of a worshiper, loving servant to her master. Giving him the highest honor in her complete submission. And we're just left to ask, what would cause a person to act like that? What would cause someone to act like this? The Pharisee does none of these things. Does none of these things. And I'm not arguing from silence, right? That's what Jesus points out to him. He points out the difference in the greetings, doesn't he? In verse, beginning there in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time she has come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So by contrast, Simon's greeting to Jesus is cold, distant, and proud. It is the bare minimum of hospitality. He does the absolute bare minimum. That is to say, you're lucky, Jesus, to even be in here. So I think we're, this also begs the question, what would cause someone to be like this? What would cause someone to act like this? Maybe you've asked that question before of someone when you've, you, if you see people come into worship and, and they worship a particular way or into a, a prayer meeting and they seem to be particularly affected or when they read scripture affected by the truths that we're reading and then others that seem like there is a literal stone on their face, a hard covering around their heart. What, what causes that? What causes someone to be like that? 
What's behind these two drastically different greetings that Jesus receives? And Jesus is going to answer the question with a parable. That's the second contrast we're going to come to in our text. Number two, two debtors. Two debtors. So Jesus' parable comes as a response, notice, to the Pharisees' thoughts. We aren't told how Jesus reads the man's thoughts. If the Father just reveals it to him as he would a prophet. It's kind of a thematic uh, piece of this passage. Is Jesus a prophet? Or he simply knows through his divine nature. But when Jesus reads people's thoughts in the Gospels, it almost always comes with a rebuke afterward. So like the thoughts aren't good that Jesus reads. And that's the case here. So pick it up there again in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So great window here into this man's heart and likely into the thinking of the Pharisees as a whole, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And maybe if we're honest, we would say maybe some of us, our own hearts. These Pharisees are scrupulous to maintain a righteous status before God by keeping the law. But their effect is that they are separatists. Sort of the closer you are to God, the further you should be from sinners. Religion is, in effect, about being good because God likes the good people, not the bad people. She's a bad person. Stay away. And if Jesus knew who she was, knew what kind of, notice the way he says it, what sort of person she was, kind of putting her in a category of a person, he would not even let her touch him. Even that word touch kind of has some sexual overtones that, that he throws in. So it's very revealing. It never enters into his mind that Jesus would know her, know who she is, and then welcome her to himself. That doesn't occur to him as a possibility. So it must be that he doesn't know this information, and therefore he's not a prophet. So I love the way Luke begins verse 40. And Jesus answering him said to him, Answering him, answering his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Not only does he know who this woman is, he knows who you are, Simon. And he's about to demonstrate just what kind of prophet he is and more. And so he answers his thoughts with this parable, beginning in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So, These debts are considerable. A denarii would be the equivalent of a day's wage. And so just translate these denarii into days. Days of working. So it would take 50 working days to eliminate one man's debt and 500 working days to eliminate the other man's debt. The other person's debt. And then factor in that the wages during these times were enough for you to barely scrape by. Barely to meet your needs. Nothing left over. Feed your family, and that's basically it. So how are you going to pay a massive debt when you don't have enough money just to barely scrape by? The answer is, the implication is, you cannot. You cannot. You don't. You're constantly behind. You're constantly crippled by the debt. There's nothing you can do. 
And yet it is clear also one of the debts is greater than the other. So the comparison comes through. It's, it's pretty straightforward. The woman owes a larger debt, at least in the ways that, that, that Simon is thinking about it. She owes a larger debt. Her sins are many. They are known. They are public. And so Simon has dedicated his life to morality, to being above reproach. So that makes it seem like he would be more presentable to Jesus, owing a lesser debt. But I think the the part of the parable that catches him and that catches us is that they're both debtors. The one who owes the lesser and the more are both debtors. They're both sinners and they're both insolvent, bankrupt, unable to pay the debt that they owe. Notice the way verse 42 begins, when they could not pay. So it doesn't matter if you owe one dollar or a million dollars. If you can't pay your debt, you can't pay your debt, period. And so, friends, this is not just true for Simon and the woman, but for all of the human race. And this this parable gets right at it, doesn't it? That we all owe a sin debt to God that we cannot pay. We have sinned against God. We have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And we cannot remedy that situation on our own. It doesn't mean that everyone has sinned in the same ways. It doesn't mean that everyone has sinned the same amount. It doesn't mean that we cannot improve our lives in various ways and grow even in our character to some extent. Absolutely we can. But it does mean that we have all sinned against God. We are all guilty and we cannot bail ourselves out. We cannot wipe out our sin debt. We have no currency that will be accepted. I've mentioned before that kind of the illustration of robbing a bank and getting away with all the cash only to find out in the getaway car that they planted those little ink explosive cartridges that blow up and mark all of your stolen money with this red ink. So now everywhere you go, you know it's marked with this stolen money. It's no good. People see it as stolen cash. It won't be, it won't be accepted. Some of us might have less red ink on our currency than others, but it's all stained, all marked by sin, and the stains are deep. And our moral, religious, ethical currency that we would try to use is no good in God's economy. We're spiritually bankrupt insolvent. Whether religious debtors, non-religious debtors, clean or dirty, rich or poor, we are unable to pay. This is the problem that we all share. The solution cannot and will not come from ourselves. And that's what Jesus' parable makes so clear, doesn't it? Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more. Another shocking twist to this story. Um, the moneylender of Jesus' day and moneylenders like our day wouldn't normally be known for canceling debts. The normal response when someone couldn't pay their debts was to possess their assets, throw them in jail, or kill them. But this moneylender shows an unprecedented, unexpected, extravagant grace to both debtors. And that gets at Jesus' question, which one then will love the lender the more? And, and I love Simon's 
response? Because it's honest. It's reluctant, but it's honest. Verse 43, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. So I would encourage you to give an honest answer to Jesus this morning. Especially if you're here and you're thinking about your sin against God, maybe for the first time. Maybe you had kind of had a pretty high view of kind of where you were in God's eyes. Let me just encourage you to be honest about what the Bible says about your sin and about my sin. Particularly if we viewed ourselves a little bit like Simon. Maybe our sins haven't made the headlines. We've kept our nose clean for the most part. Notice here, he thinks he's holding to a high moral standard when in fact he is revealing himself to be graceless and merciless and loveless. His self-righteous heart has no room for Jesus. No room for God. And I wonder if you can relate to that. Are you trusting in salvation by comparison? That, that you're better than some that you know around you? You're better than others. Listen, the Bible is clear, isn't it, that our standard isn't our college roommate or our siblings or even our friends at church. It's, it's the holy God of the universe. So every thought, every action is in his full view. We all have a great sin debt to pay. And we need to have a right perspective about where we stand before a holy God. And you should be encouraged that Jesus sits down with this man. He sits down for dinner with him. So he loves the Pharisee and the prostitute. It's a little bit easier for the prostitute to see her need for Jesus than, it is, than the Pharisee. But Jesus is there for both. He calls them both to himself. So he calls the prodigal and the older brother. But the first step is admitting that you owe this debt before God that you cannot pay. And if the lender doesn't cancel it, you will receive the judgment that you deserve. And so if you find yourself in this desperate situation of owing a debt that you cannot pay, you've gotten behind on your mortgage, they're about to come take away your home, and your lender shows up at your house and says, I'm canceling your debt. You no longer owe the bank anything. The house is yours. How would you respond? You're, you're, you're set free from this dark cloud that would always be over you. And he said, your debt is canceled. This news is, is kind of shines the light on, on Simon's heart. And it brings attention for us as well to examine our own hearts. That's the final contrast that I want to just point out here. This final pair that we'll consider this morning. The two loves that we see. Number three, the two loves. Jesus draws a conclusion from the parable that explains the two different ways Simon and the woman would treat him. We know that because he says, therefore, in verse 47, he's, he's compared Simon's lukewarm hospitality to the woman's and her show of affection. Therefore, we read in verse 47, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So here's my paraphrase. Simon, you can know 
that her sin debt was forgiven because of how she treated me. It wasn't her love that saved her. It was her love that displayed that she was saved. Her sins, which are many, were forgiven for she loved much. Forgiven there is in the the perfect tense, meaning that she's in a state of forgiveness. And the results of her, her forgiveness continue, but the action has taken place already in the past. In other words, this is not her first interaction with Jesus. Either she had heard him teach and trusted him, or she had had a personal interaction with him that we're unaware of in the recent past, and her trust was in him because we see her love. Her love is a result of being forgiven. The Jerusalem Bible puts it this way, for this reason I tell you that her sins, her many sins, must have been forgiven or she would not have shown such great love. That's the, the sense of the verse. Her love isn't a cause of her forgiveness, it's the result. And the same logic applies to a lack of love for Jesus. It's because that person has been forgiven little or not been forgiven at all. In their perspective, Jesus is small because their need is small. And their love, therefore, is also small. And just in case you missed it, Jesus turns to her and speaks this life-changing sentence over her. In verse 48, And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. J.C. Ryle calls this a public, authoritative declaration of forgiveness. Even though there had already been an interaction with the woman and Jesus, even though he just said it in her hearing that her sins were forgiven, he tells her again. He looks her in the face and tells her, your sins are forgiven. Often as sinners, we need to be reminded of this truth. She spends a lot of time with other people who are giving her a different truth. She saw the looks of the people in the room. She had been told over and over that she was a sinner and rejected and shunned for her sins. And so the one who holds the gavel in his hand looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. The three times that she's referred to as a sinner are matched by three times that she's referred to as forgiven. Jesus tells her she's forgiven in verse 47. He reminds her that she's forgiven in verse 48. And the crowd points to what Jesus has said about her forgiveness in verse 49. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. But even if we didn't have that repetition, we would know, wouldn't we? We would know because of how she loved Jesus. You want to know what Christians are like? They're like this. Disciples are lovers of Jesus. Because the gospel creates a life of love, both to God and to others. 1 John 4, 19 We heard it already this morning. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
A reminder for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ and have covenanted together in a local church to do this very thing, to love one another with the love that Jesus has shown us. Because he says, that's how you're known as my disciples, by your love. The love that I have shown you, when you display that love, you show to be my disciple. And then the reverse is just so, so telling. Simon's thoughts about this woman Look again at Jesus' question to him in verse 44. He turns toward the woman and asks Simon, Do you see this woman? I just think that's a very penetrating question. Do you even see her? Not do you see her sin? Or the annoyance that she is at your dinner party? Or the embarrassment that she is maybe to your reputation? But do you see her? I wonder if there are those in our lives that we just simply do not see. We see a label. We see a reputation. We see frustration. But we do not see someone who will live forever. Someone made in the image of God. When we look at a homeless drug addict or a political rival or a theological liberal or a convicted sinner or a person at church that we're sideways with. Our vision of others is just a reflection, isn't it, of the way that we feel that God is seeing us. And if we have little need for grace in our own lives, by our own perspective, it shouldn't surprise us that we don't look with grace on others. That looking down on others would be natural. Do we believe that it's God's grace that saves? And if that grace has saved us... Why wouldn't it? Why couldn't it save someone else? So are we keeping people at arm's length who we know have trouble in their lives? Great suffering in their lives? Maybe from a lack of faith that God would actually change something there. Or that we don't have the time to even get involved. We, we don't want to touch or be touched by sinners. People can tell what we really think about them. They can tell. Jesus does not shy away from the reality of this woman's sins. He does not sugarcoat it. He does not deny it. He does not affirm her in her sin. Her sins are many. But then he calls her to himself for the solution. Friends, that is our role. That is our role. Call people to Jesus. Be clear about what the Bible says about sin, about their sin, about our sin, and that there is a solution. Who around you are you just not seeing? Who seems out of reach of the grace of God? Jesus is so intentional about pointing out this woman, pointing out her new status, and how intentional he is about forgiving her sins, being known as the forgiver of sins. I think that's an example for us, that we should be just as intentional to shape things, to shape conversations around Jesus, to get to Jesus. Verse 49, And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus just doubles down as they're whispering and talking about who he is. Only God can do this. 
Jesus looks at her again, claiming the authority to forgive sins. He says, you're forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Not your love, not your tears, not your perfumed ointment. Your faith. You're saved. You're justified before God by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith in Jesus results in, Jesus says, go in peace. Go into peace. Paul says it really clearly in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good news. That is what Jesus is proclaiming. That is what Jesus has come to live out. Justified by faith. Peace with God. You were at enmity because of your sin. Now you have peace and acceptance with God because of Christ. Through faith in Christ. And lingering in the background of this story. Maybe in some of our minds. Especially if we're thinking about justice. Is how can a moneylender stay in business. If he makes it a practice to forgive debts. And then if the moneylender represents God. In the parable, and the debt represents sin. How can God be holy and forgive someone who has committed many sins? Passing over sin is simply unjust. It calls into question God's righteousness. And so the means, any means of canceling a debt has to uphold God's righteous standard and pay the debt that we're unable to pay. And so that means, that means... The good news, the means, is God's Son on a wooden cross. Paul says it so beautifully in Colossians 2. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, forgiven, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, canceled, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Nailing Jesus to the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we owed. God poured out his wrath on his son in our place. And it was his righteous, loving life that was given as a ransom for sinners. One song describes it as all-sufficient merit. All-sufficient merit, shining like the sun. A fortune I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit at my Savior's cross, where all sufficient merit did what I could not. This is the gospel. Jesus paid it all. Jesus died on a cross. He rose from the grave, triumphant over sin and death. That if we would turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in him, we would be saved. And he would look at you in the face and say, your sins are forgiven forever. That offer is on the table this morning. On the table for you. Would you just take it? Would you receive it? Would you turn from walking away from it and turn to Jesus and receive the gift of grace? And if you have received it, and if you have believed it, We cannot treat Jesus like a spiritual roommate in our life. He's around, but he's nothing special. He's a part of my life, but it's not centered on him. 
And so when I come to worship publicly or don't come to worship publicly, am I, am I seeking him like this woman or am I seeking him like a Pharisee? It's Sunday, so we sing and I'm going to sing well and it's going to be good. Friends, if we would love Christ more, we must cultivate the awareness of how much we have been forgiven. It's at the cross that we see just how terrible our sin is and just how much we have been loved and forgiven. Listen to John Stott. He says, our sin must be extremely horrible. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately what sent Christ there was our own greed, envy, cowardice, and other sins. And Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment and so put them away. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except the cross. There these noxious weeds shrivel and die. There they are seen for the tatty, poisonous things that they are. For there is no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness except that he should bear it himself in Christ. It must be serious indeed. And he did. He did. He did it for us. For his glory. How could we be indifferent? How could we even take it all in? John Newton struggled to take it all in. He said this, so much forgiven, so little love. He wrote that just a few weeks before he composed Amazing Grace. So many riches, he continues, so, many, so few returns. Such great privileges and a life so sadly below them. I would want to compare one Pharisee's assessment of his sin with another Pharisee who had met Jesus and was changed differently, the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul never got over meeting Jesus. And it's not because his sin ledger was longer and darker than everyone else in the world by comparison. It's because he was so close to Christ. And he knew how much he had been loved and forgiven. No one knew his sin better than him. He was the the, the sinner he knew the most was himself. He said, I'm the foremost. He knew and stood amazed at the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So, beloved, we get to sing this. It is done. It is finished. No more debt, I owe. Paid in full, all sufficient merit, not my own. Who is this that forgives sins? It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. He shows mercy to those that have been soiled by their sin. He knows what sort of man, woman, child we are. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died to save us. And that gospel of grace creates in his people a life of love. Friend, is that you? May it be so of University Park Baptist Church. 
May we be known by our love. Let's pray. No more debt, Lord. No more debt I owe because of your sufficient, all-sufficient merit, your goodness, your life that is worthy of universes you laid down. It took that to reconcile us with a holy God. Oh, Lord, forgive us when we are lukewarm. When we come to our Bibles, forgive us. When we don't see people because we're so drowning in our own centered, bent-in thoughts on ourselves. Oh, Lord, would you give us this vision of this woman, all of us, that we couldn't even get close to you without being reminded, without looking to Calvary. Lord, would that spill over, we pray, in all of our lives. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Oh, Lord, we worship you. We praise you for your goodness. We don't deserve it. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.